Hi, so welcome back. Uh, I'm very excited. We've got uh, Andrea Simon here, who's the author of On the Brink. Uh, Andy is a corporate anthropologist who specializes in working with organizations that need or want to change. Her company, Simon Associates Management Consultants, applies the theories, methods, and tools of corporate anthropology and ethnographic research to businesses and not-for-profit organizations. Dr. Simon formed SAMC to help companies and organizations adapt to changing times. Her proprietary change map process enables companies to envision a future and then reverse plan to ensure that that vision is achievable. Andy, great to finally have you on the show. So uh, welcome to Culture Hacker. Hey, it's a pleasure. What a nice, nice opportunity to share what we do together. Well, listen, we're very excited, but I got to say, first thing up, corporate anthropologists. Please let our listeners know what that's all about. You're not the first one who has asked. <laughs> okay, good. And I, I, so I launched my company well over a decade ago. Um, prior to that, I was an executive working on changing uh, financial service and healthcare organizations. I've been a visiting professor teaching entrepreneurship. But when I launched my business, I really was a corporate anthropologist. There weren't any that I could find at the time, and it seemed to be I'm a blue ocean strategist. It was a blue ocean of unmet needs and possibilities. Applying anthropology to business, as you know, has been going on for quite some time. But converting that into a, uh, a discipline that made the application to um, a corporation, a small business, an entrepreneur, was not common. And so we launched it, and it has done us extremely well, although I, I'm sure people don't really know what I do or how I do it. Um, but as long as we help companies change, that's all that matters. Well, listen, you, you, you hit, the, hit the right note there. You talked about corporate uh, change. So at Colchak, we're obviously focused about changing and improving corporate culture. And one of the things, whether it's in your book or in your business, you talk about business leaders seeing their companies in fresh eyes. So can you give us some insight? You know, culture being such a big, big sort of piece in terms of company strategy, how do you incorporate this change in corporate culture to taking businesses to new heights? Let me give you a story. I'm a storyteller, Great. and and I often think a story illustrates it better than uh, anything else. So I had a, a hospital that was $25 million in the red, and the CEO, CEO and I knew each other for quite some time. He invited me to come out and work with them to try and turn it around as a consultant. And we began to see a, all kinds of interesting things. The way I approach a client is I hang out. So I hung out in the lobby and I hung out in the, in, the, in the cafeteria and I went out to observe patients in doctor offices. I went out to patients in, in their homes. We went out to physicians who were long distance away and we listened. And you know that you can do a survey, but by and large, I'm looking for not the facts, but what they mean. And anthropology and ethnographic research observation can tell us things that people can tell us. And so some of the things that we found, for example, were people were always alone when they came inside. And this feeling of being all alone was repeated often. And so we began to develop programs to help them never be alone. In fact, it became part of a mantra so that when you come to this institution, you are never alone. Well, all of a sudden, doctors had somebody who they could call to make sure that when their patients came, they were never alone. And then we kept growing beyond the pain points to begin to see tremendous opportunities. Now, the place turned around and was generating a really nice positive income. 
And then we began to realize that most of the doctors and um, the focus was on women. Women made 80% of the decisions. Women were most of our patients. And then we dug further and we realized that 60% of men have doctors. That meant there was a huge unmet need among non-users. And, and, you know, as I'm sharing this story, one thing led to another. So all of a sudden, going after men became a new market space that provided opportunities. Now, the organization and even the doctors would say to me, you know, I'm really organized around the women. If a man works, I'm not even open. And the men would tell us, well, I use the emergency room, a very expensive way to get care, as their solution. So, you know, as, as, so if you step back and you begin to observe what's really going on, it makes you begin to wonder whether we're missing things that are right in front of us. And I often quote John Seeley Brown, the way forward is all around you. But by and large, your brain hates to see what doesn't fit its mind map or its story. And so our job is really to help them see, feel, and think in new ways. And often I have to take them by the hands and take them with me. And we, we finished an interview or a story session or we listen into what patients are talking about or doctors are concerned about, and we walk out with very different hearing. And next thing you know, we're beginning to compare notes and realize that what they're saying and what we're hearing aren't the same things. So the methodology, the theory, method, and tools of anthropology, getting at their culture, and we can talk about culture because it's the essence of what makes us human, but in the symbols of those stories come all the meaning, and that's what's so exciting because it isn't the story per se, and it's not the words, it's what do they mean, and they mean very different things even if they're the same words. So I have a hunch you understand that from the work that you've been doing. You know what, I, I love the insights there, and that, that methodology and your approach seems so applicable today when it comes to uh, the employees in a workplace, because I think for so long, many organizations have forgotten about their most important asset, you know, the employee, and creating an experience that makes them feel good. So let me ask you, in your experience, have you done any work or have you applied that same methodology to how employees come to work every day, looking at some of their challenges and stresses and any aha moments that came out of it? Oh, my goodness. We're working with several companies now, and they have literally given us their millennials. Oh, good. Well, let's get into our millennials. <laughs> so we could get our millennials, but, but in, 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 in a good anthropological way, it's no less about the millennials, per se, and how they do things than it is about the intersections between the owners of the firm who are typically boomers. Remember, 67% of America's firms are owned by boomers the Gen Xers who seem to be the poor middlemen between the two generations, and the fact that another generation has come along. I mean, millennials will be 50% of the workforce in two years, and they are a, just a different type of person. They say the same words and do them completely differently. So we are, are working to try and help each of them begin to see the other with fresh eyes. And I tease a little bit. For the boomer, and they feel like a Martian has landed, and, and, and they don't quite figure out what they mean. One guy said to us um, in a logistics firm, he said, I had to buy ping pong tables for all of my millennials. Well, ping pong is hot. And, I mean, there are actually companies that have contests for ping pong and companies of having ping pong contests among companies. Millennials are becoming hot on ping pong. And now, for him, it was, don't they work nine to five and then play games? And for the folks who are working there, why? You know, isn't it about getting it done, not necessarily in a, a constrained period of time? 
the millennials are knowledge workers. They're not in manufacturing. And how they use their brain and how do you manage their brains matter. If you don't manage with the brain in mind, you're really missing out on what's going on because they see, feel, and think differently. And I tell people, people buy with the heart and justify with the head. And you keep directing them with the head, with what you think is logical, and they don't know what you really mean. It doesn't feel right. They've also grown up playing soccer. And soccer is not kickball or stickball or pick it up in the, in, the, in the yard ball. It's a whole different structure that starts young and, and takes them right through long into their maturity. And, and it's a very interesting way of doing things. And the last thing is that English is a very interesting language because words out of context don't mean the same thing. And anthropologists are very much into language, and we try to speak the native language. Um, but you watch the conversations, and you realize that the communication requires some coaching. And, it, it, and there, there's, so in one group, we're working with the, the millennials to help them reimagine the firm. And every time they come up with a new idea, it's shot down. And so now we're working on the other side of this. You ask them to help reimagine the firm, and every time they do, you don't give them any vehicle or process for achieving it. So let's see what you really would like, other than to be gratuitous. And so, and then I'm working with another firm. We're getting the same types of things in a different context. Um, they're more engineers, and, and they have a different structure. It, it's just a very interesting time because before they know it, those firms are going to be either owned by millennials or not in business at all. And so the, the times are changing. My last thing is that I have one guy who has a bunch of great sales guys, but nobody's answering the telephone. <laughs> and the millennials don't answer the telephone. Yeah. They go online and they search for their answers and they find them and then they call you. It's, it's a very different method of buying. And they can't quite figure out, what are my sales guys going to do? I said, I don't know if you need sales guys. So it's, um, the times are changing and culture and the behaviors, the values, the beliefs that come with them, the languages we use are all in transformation. So it's a very exciting time for us. Yeah, I, I can tell you get it, you're getting very excited. So here's an important piece. So, you know, traditionally you would say culture is kind of given as that responsibility of HR, you know, and yet when I work through and look at many organizations, I see HR really struggling in some ways to, you know, incorporate this large element of employee experience and culture. So let me ask you, where should that responsibility of company culture lie? Who's got the biggest responsibility to ensure that there's a great culture that not only makes the employees, you know, happy and engaged, but makes raving fans out of the customers? Where do you see the responsibility starting? You sound like you talk to the same poor HR people I have. <laughs> they're a small group out there, but uh, they're very important right now. Well, what happens often is a new CEO comes in and says, we need to change the culture. Um, he may say, I don't really know what it is, but we're going to change it. Yep. And then he says to the HR person, I want you to change the culture and then hire people who are going to be good for the new culture. And, and then we get a call, and, and it's always painful because – you know, we use this wonderful methodology that came out of the University of Michigan called the Organiza Organizational Cultural Assessment Instrument. And I've got an article in Forbes, it's actually a year ago, on what kind of cultures men and women want. But going back to the HR folks, we try and use this methodology to assess what kind of culture do you have today and what would you prefer it to be? Now, the CEO um, has something in his mind, and we try to work with them because at the end of the day, it all starts with the C-suite. Mm -hmm. 
and it's not HR. They're facilitators, um, and and they may be at times even smart on organizational design, but on culture and culture change, I haven't found too many really um, knowledgeable. Um, but but the C-suite becomes the owners of this. And when we finally get that OCAI taken, um, you begin to see on a picture exactly what the organization thinks it does today. I mean, I had one that was so um, top-heavy, hierarchical, and bureaucratic that they were off the charts. The CEO signed every check. That's how oh, wow. it was. Mm-hmm. And they all wanted to become more innovative, collaborative, and market-driven. And then I had some commodities traders who were so market-driven that they had no innovation and no collaboration. They didn't like each other, but they made a lot of money. And they followed the rules because they knew those were you know, non-negotiable. So you, know, you can begin to get a good picture of it. Now the question becomes, what does it mean to be more innovative? You know, this is sort of a buzz. It yep. became a cliche. We need to be more innovative. And we have to empower our folks. So that hospital I mentioned, we did this with. And they all knew they wanted to be more innovative and collaborative. And, and so as we dug down to the next level, the question was, okay, how shall we be innovative? Are you going to empower nurses at the bedside? Are you going to get the silos that are maintenance and facilities to work better with the nursing staff to turn the beds faster? You know, let's talk about what the words really mean in terms of changing the behaviors to get things done. Um, so HR it was extremely important and very important in those cases, um, but they really are um, enablers of a process of evaluation, assessment, and visualization. And, and then the management team and the employees all have to share. It's very experiential. This is a journey. Um, nobody's really aware of what they do every day. The habits take over, and they have a great day. And now you want them to change, but you don't really know how or how much or how far, but we have to be more, and you can fill in the blank. I often use theater as a metaphor. As we start the process, I say you really all know how to play Macbeth really well. You know your roles. You come and you do it every day. You don't even have to think about it. And you get paid at the end of the month or the week. Now we're all going to play Hamlet. It's a whole new script, but we haven't written it yet. And you haven't learned it yet. You have no rehearsal time. You don't even know if it's going to get applause or not. And somehow we want you to jump and change. And it doesn't work that way. And culture isn't a, a suit you put on. The suit is part of it. But it's, it's a deep habit that's formed. And those poor HR guys have been hiring people to fit the culture for a long time. And now one, one HR person was so cute. She said, they want me to change the culture. Should I hire people for the one that's coming or the one that was? <laughs> and I laughed and I said, I don't know what's coming. And you are going to hire people who will be pulled into the existing culture simply because they want to belong. Mm-hmm. And nobody's going to take a job where they're the outliers or the change agents or the newbies. They all want to be part of something so they can survive. And it's not incidental to their life. It's essential. So that's what we see. And HR is necessary but not sufficient. Listen, I, I love where you're going into it. So let's get into the sort of the, this, this change a little bit more because, you know, in terms of culture, there's a number of mechanisms that play in, in an employee's daily routine, whether it's their managers or leaders, um, the way that you're know, communicated to, their performance management systems, whether or not there's coaching, career development, uh, all these recognition, all these mechanisms play such a big part in, someone, in, in how someone feels about coming to work. So when it comes to culture, you know, 
what have you seen as the most important mechanisms to start to shift or focus in on to help not only employees but managers take that leap to closing the gap that you want? Where do you see the uh, best opportunities, knowing that they probably change from company to company, but you're sort of a has for our listeners to sort of say, hey, look here. It's a great question. Um, really great question because um, I'm not going to make this simple and say it's like Weight Watchers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you weigh this now, you want to weigh that then, this is what you're going to have to do and check in every week to make sure it happens. But behavior change is not easy. And so we start with <clears throat> the fact that the story in your brain will sort of reality to conform to it. So what is the story? So we work with teams of, of staff to begin to tell us what the story is about today. And visualization becomes so important. Is this a very personal place? Is it like an extended family? Tell us a story about it. You know, are you very much sharing a lot about yourselves? Or are you very entrepreneurial? Uh, Are you going to take risks? Is there a vision? Do you have a sense that you've got empowerment to take um, options and make choices? Or are you very uh, oriented toward results? And is that's all you talk about. And you can begin to hear in the stories those key values coming through. Is it very controlled, structured? Um, I did some work with family firms, and only the banks were controlled and structured. The family firms were very um, people-oriented, very interesting. So once we get that story, then we talk about the leadership. Tell us about what kind of leaders you have here. Let's visualize what you're actually doing. because, And I share this with you because until they start to tell you about it, it's very deep, but it doesn't, they don't really articulate, well, how do we get leadership here and how is it managed? Is a leadership very mentoring or facilitating or nurturing? Tell me a story about how you manage, lead somebody. Are you very innovative? Are you very aggressive? You know, what kind of a leader do you have here? Um, or are they very rules-oriented so they can coordinate and organize and have a very efficient operation. And then we get to the management part. Um, is there a lot of teamwork, consensus? Tell it, and, you know, you asked the question well. It's multiplex. But until we start to get them to tell us about the way it is and then tell me a story about where this is experienced, they're not self-aware of what's going on at all. They just, you know, flow. So we go through the styles of management. I love the ones that are full of innovation, freedom, uniqueness. How free do you feel here? Are there high demands? Do they hold you accountable? In many places, the lack of accountability is amazing to me. They're full of innovation and freedom and collaboration, but nothing gets it done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then you have the ones who are very secure in their employment. The conformity is strong. There's a lot of predictability and stability. Often that's what we find, because that was the world that was, and the desire to be more innovative, collaborative as the one that appears to be coming, because many of these companies simply have stifled their growth by being so well run that they forgot they had to be innovative. Um, And then we get into the glue. The glue questions are always interesting to me. Um, Tell me a word that sort of glues you together. Is it loyalty or trust? Um, is it innovation and, and, and being the, the leading edge? Uh, are you aggressive and winning? Give us a word that sort of captures it. Or do you really have formal rules and policies? And we all know in one company I asked, well, how do we make decisions? And they say, well, you take it up to the CEO and he'll tell you whether we can do it or not. <laughs> well, it was pretty clear that's yep. how we make decisions. 
Um, and then we go through the same on strategy, and the criteria for success is extremely important because at the end of the day, how do you define success? Because if you're going to change, what will that change to? Because in one company, the definition of success was how well we got along. And that was really whether we could stay and play or not. So consensus building was key. In another, it was about having the newest products, even if they don't always deliver the bottom line. But we were the leader and the incubator for change. Um, then there was a competitive market, and we are really going to have a market share that's extraordinary, and that's all that matters. We did some work for a large company, and they called the numbers in every day. They wanted to become more innovative, but in fact, their culture really was results-oriented, and that was a bit overwhelming. And then there's the efficiency, dependability, um, smooth scheduling. We work with a cement factory in Mexico, and they wanted also to be more collaborative and innovative, but you can hear the pattern here. They were tremendously <laughs> siloed, and all everyone cared about were the rules, smooth delivery and production, and making the numbers. And so it's a very interesting um, process. Now, going back to your question about the complexity of it, um, society is complex. And now the question becomes, how do you simplify this? Um, the reason I often use theater is that at least it gives them a metaphor. Um, sometimes it's game metaphors. But um, people are not, by and large, trained to change. It's the antithesis of how we've uh, thought of ourselves in a, a way of surviving. But humans have evolved, and they've evolved often because they've had lots of ideas to work with and not a single one. And then they flow back and forth between being those entrepreneurs with lots of ideas and the processes that they need. I will tell you the most successful companies are balanced. They've got ideas coming but a process to evaluate them. And they've got results as a focus, but they know how to do it together. And that becomes an interesting model to work with because at least it gives us something to push them towards and they can see the extremes. So I hope that sort of answered your complex question. It yeah. was a complex answer. There's a lot, a lot of pieces. One, I want to jump back to something you said. I, I find that fascinating and, and, I, and I really do agree with you. You know, the idea of accountability, I, I, I've kind of said this a couple of times recently that it feels like we've stopped as managers or companies having tough conversations and making tough decisions. And you kind of mentioned there that, you know, there's a lack of accountability you see out there. Do you think that's real that, you know, we, we've become more passive and we've stopped having the tough conversations and making the tough decisions? And why do you think that seems to be more prevalent today? It just seems to be something that's out there. Or is it something that's always been there? Well, I, I guess I could answer yes and yes. Uh, I had a very large automotive company say to me, we've gotten so collaborative, it's become a cover for not making hard decisions. And, um, and, and so the excuse was, well, we, we don't know which is the right one. I, I, I think that the pace of change is like a hockey stick now. And in the last 10 years, the number of things that are facing us from artificial intelligence um, to autonomous vehicles, you know, there are actually tractors that are autonomous vehicles in operation now, um, to <laughs> robots. Robots are going to be half the workforce in 20 years. Um, there's, there's so much coming in the speed of change that humans are most uncomfortable in ambiguity, and so they become hunkered down, and they are unable to make a decision because the old decision process seems to have been uh, or, or short, short change now, 
and the new one isn't yet in place to assess how to do this. And, and consequently, I, I've had clients who don't know who their client is because the clients are changing. Wow. And, and then they watch roll-ups taking competitors out of the market, which would sound great, but then the bigger companies can do things they can't, so the mid-market clients are feeling squeezed. Um, and, and there's so much um, speed of change, and humans are just not well tuned in to do that. And, and so they become immobilized, and therefore we don't make decisions for fear of making the wrong one, and we don't have a testing mindset. And so all the things that you're talking about are pervasive. I'm finding them as well in some parts of the country more than others. I won't name which, but, you know, I travel. I do speaking engagements three weeks a month across the country. Mm -hmm. So I've been in Argonne, Albuquerque, Harrisburg, Houston, Chicago, all over the country, Mexico, Canada. And and I will tell you, Americans across the country are different, Mm -hmm. and they're each responding to the changes, some with uh, speed and, and joy, and others with, um, we're all about community and family, and we are going to take care of them. It's hard to believe it, but there are some who are are simply not even hardwired for high-speed Internet, and others who have 5G and are moving fast and furiously to be a second Silicon Valley or third or fourth. But but it's there's lots of complexity going on. And there's lots of uncertainty, so I see that as the major roadblock right now. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. So, so kind of let's you know keep going to that. So, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot is, is you know we're hearing more and more anyway. These companies are getting in trouble because they they're, they're forgetting how. And I know that's a word that that if you've picked up, you've used a lot so sort of in our in our show so far. So, companies need to be really focused on how they do business as much as how much business they're doing or what their business is like. But we're seeing that companies that forget about their values or forgetting about doing things the right way, that, that they're being brought into the light, obviously a lot quicker because of this transparent and social media world. So you've got these crises that seem to be occurring around culture, whether it's United, Uber, or the Wells Fargo's, uh, the VW's. Um, what? How, how do you start to make that shift towards focusing more on the how rather than just what's being delivered? Oh, great question. And um, I'm not quite sure because what you're saying is, is very important. How do we get people to realize that it's not just what you do and the bottom line results, but it's how you're getting it done right. that will get those bottom line results, right? Yep. And, and that mirror um, requires uh, often a fresh perspective, so I'm going to give you what I think, but I don't think I have a lot of data right now to support what I'm saying. So I say that carefully. Um, but what I, I see happening is that the need for a new leadership, a new CEO, is now often the, and it has been for a while, a, a solution for a stalled company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm speaking out loud as I'm thinking here, but in my book there are seven case studies, and each one of them were well-established CEOs. In two cases, they were new. But by and large, they brought us in because they couldn't figure out how to change what was going on. And I do think that to some degree, they don't have a toolkit to begin to see things in a new way. So they come from the outside, perhaps, as a new CEO, and they bring what they learned before to apply to a new place. That may have no relevance at all. Mm. Um, And I, I think that your point is extremely important um, how do I get them to begin, how do we get them to believe and begin to see what's going on uh, as if they were anthropologists? Mm-hmm. 
as if I just dropped them into a small island in the Trobriand Islands or Samoa, and they really didn't know what was happening. Yep. That's assuming they do know. The humility that comes with being a, a major transformer of an organization has to be a top-down, bottom-up kind of intersection, um, and it can't be directed from the top it, it, because the, it's, a, it's a bottom. I often think undercover boss is some of my best advertising because mm-hmm. unless you go down into the field and see what's actually happening, you're clueless. Great, great insight. So, so, so let- it's a very good question, and I do think, you know, the worst major to take in college today is anthropology. They don't have any jobs. Well, and my, so my, my, cry, <laughs> my cry is that should be your first hire. Yeah. <laughs> you need someone to help you see with new eyes. So listen, let's kind of keep that because I know that you're working on the next book and, you know, and, and there's a big focus on women entrepreneurs and the cultures that, that, that they're building. So I'd love to finish up kind of just talking about that. How do you see women making such a big, because I believe they already are, making such a big positive impact and really changing how we work today? Oh, it's a great question. So I'll give you the sequences because I am now getting dig deeper into the book. Great. I, I, I'll tell you, part of my pain was I read my book after I finished it. And I realized that the seven case studies, there were actually eight, but, but that was a small one, but the seven ones had no women in them. Wow. And I never had paid attention to the way in which my clients were more men than women. And, um, and then I started to dig deeper. I did some research using the OCAI I just mentioned, and I found that women and men really wanted a particular kind of culture. And I said, well, what are women actually doing? Women now represent 38% of the businesses in the United States. And it's growing geometrically while total business growth is small. The women growing their own businesses is going up dramatically. They now represent 46% of the labor force. And if we're not paying attention to it, whether we see it or we don't, it's happening. And so then I started to dig into the stories. So I have... Uh, a couple of them on Huffington Post. You can find them on my website and I'm, my own podcast. I'm interviewing women CEOs from healthcare, family firms, innovative entrepreneurs, um, people who have, have started and sold several businesses, all women. And they've done it with a very big intentionality and the kind of culture they like to have. And so Stephanie Breedlove, I'll use as an example, but she realized that she was with Accenture and she was a new mother and couldn't really um, raise her family and still have a career. And as she dug deeper, she realized that women like herself had nobody to support the childcare workers who were coming in to help them. So she started Brie Love and Associates and slowly but surely grew it into a company that she sold to Care.com last year, year and a half ago, for $50 million. And it was a very interesting Men and women had a very nice work balance, work-life balance, uh, realized that it was all outside in from the customer backwards, and grew their business listening to their customers and finding out ways to help them. And I hear this over and over again. There's a mantra, there's a theme that I'm, I'm picking up. We think about it from the customer backwards, and we also think about it from our employees outward. And we empower our employees so that they can become a solution provider for our clients, our customers, and, and the, uh, the repetitiveness about it. So I interviewed a wonderful woman down in, in Florida, uh, Susan Davis, who I've known for a while, who's um, uh, president and CEO of a multiple hospital chain, part of the Ascension system down there. 
And she starts her conversation by saying, Andy, it's all about the patient. And, and it keeps going on with, we just build and align ourselves, everything we can do to help the patient and the care that we give. Um, another company that's in the recruiting business, and, and Kim Shepard, fabulous CEO, built three businesses now in recruiting. She has a completely virtual company, and yet they all have a culture. They get online on Thursday nights and have movie sites nights together, and she encourages them. She'll come out with a problem to solve. They'll come back with a solution, and together they will build a solution, half guys, half women. There's something going on that's going to be quite transformative, and I'm anxious to see how many of them I can pull together and talk about both from an illustrative point of view but also something that could really be done by others um, because the ability to grow these businesses comes from solving the problems of the customer in new and innovative ways. It's value innovation at its best. So that's what I'm really having fun with. But to your point, from the beginning, our conversation has been start with the culture and the rest can follow. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a perfect way to kind of finish it up because that at the end of the day is really uh, for men and women out there, all business needs to begin with the customer in mind. Um, and just remember that that includes your internal customers as well. Your employees certainly make that difference. Listen, Andy, a wealth of knowledge. We could keep going for a long, long time. But listen, thank you so much for some great insights today. I think you've made some converts. Uh, hopefully some people uh, look up and really get in and understand the benefits of anthropology and the benefits to its business. Andy, what's the easiest way for our listeners to uh, get hold of you and uh, maybe give you a, have a more personal conversation about some of the things going on in their company? Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. This has been absolutely fun. I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to chat with someone who really gets what we're talking about and enjoys it as much as I do. Oh, it's great. For listeners who, you've just been great, who would like to contact us, uh, info at uh, simonassociates.net works really well. Um, my websites, I have two. One is simonassociates.net, and the other is andysimon.com. My book is On the Brink, A Fresh Lens to Take Your Business to New Heights. And our podcast launches uh, June 19th. It's called On the Brink. And uh, we'll be bringing together people who are helping others, uh, like Shane is, who are on the brink of soaring. And they're really on the cusp, and as they come together, all of a sudden the stories are just very exciting. So I hope to continue the conversation. It's been absolutely delightful. Thank you for the opportunity. Andy, listen, thank you so much. And please keep those stories coming. They're absolutely fascinating. All right, ladies and gentlemen, check out Andy Simon. Uh, again, she's doing some great work out there. Andy, come back and see us when the uh, next book is done. I want to really uh, learn. I think you're on, uh, on a tipping point of really finding some great breakthroughs, not only just because of what women are now doing in business today, but really getting to the DNA of what great companies are all about and, of course, what great culture is all about. Ladies and gentlemen, we're Culture Hacker. Very excited. Uh, again, tune in next time. Uh, we'll continue the conversation about how to transform cultures and really make a difference in the employee experience. Andy, thanks very much.